Grace, mercy, and peace are yours. From God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. As we have been tracing God's plan of salvation through these different verses of the Bible, today we are making it to the end of the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 49 is this unique chapter in the Bible where God gives to Jacob a glimpse of the future. And Jacob passes that future along to his sons. We'll see some of the overarching themes that we've connected already in the first five ideas of the story of the Bible in 16 verses through this promise given to Judah. Why a lion? Well, maybe I could ask the question a little bit differently. When you hear the word lion, what comes to your mind? I'll give you just a, a few moments to think about that. Maybe you've uh, been to a zoo recently. That might not be the best picture of what a lion is like. I don't know about you, but my experience of seeing lions at the zoo, they're often sort of lazing about. Usually I get to see them yawn a few times while I'm looking at them. Very rarely do you get to see a lion do much moving, right? And maybe that picture that we have of lions sort of belies a little bit what they truly can do. The power that a lion has. Did, did you know this, for example, that lions can run over 50 miles an hour? Did you know that lions can leap over 30 feet in one single bound? And that one swipe of a lion's paw can completely incapacitate its prey? Throughout history, lions have been the idea of power, of regalness, of royalty. Many kings throughout the ages have had lions on their royal crests. And maybe that's the point of comparison that we can take today in our sermon. This idea that, that Judah is a lion and that his offspring, the lion of Judah, is a king, is exactly what God is trying to drive home through this promise that Jacob passed on to Judah today. And so as we look today at that idea of the Lion of Judah, we, we want to note two things. That this is a royal offspring that God is promising through Judah. And then secondly, that God has a relentless commitment to fulfill the promises that he makes. I suppose by now you might be sitting there, those of you that have been here all along, maybe those even joining us for sermon series of number six in a series if we're going to summarize the whole Bible in 16 verses, why are we spending so much time in Genesis? There are 66 books in the Bible. We're on week six and we haven't even made it out of the first book yet. Can I tell you that that's intentional? Because what we see in Genesis really is the, the establishment of all kinds of the themes that are going to be key to God's plan of salvation throughout. You've seen some of them already. The theme of kingdom, the theme of covenant, the theme of seeds or offspring, and now the theme of royalty and redemption as well. You see, Genesis is going to establish for us what the rest of the Bible fills in the gaps with. That's how God not just planned, not just promised, but then fulfilled and carried out his plan of salvation. 
Last week, Vicar talked about a promise given to Abraham. And if you glance through the book of Genesis, you know that we have now skipped over approximately 37 chapters of Genesis. Most of the story of Abraham, all of the story of his son Isaac, most of the story of Jacob, and we've arrived at this final moment in Jacob's life. You see, the last 13 chapters of Genesis are about Jacob's sons. Primarily, they are about Joseph. And you might remember, in a quick review, that God accomplished great things through Joseph. What he accomplished through Joseph was the preservation of the promise that he had made. Do you remember that there was a famine in the land of Canaan and really throughout the whole world? But God had put Joseph in the exact right position at the exact right time so that when his brothers needed food, when they needed to be fed, Joseph was in charge of the food in the country of Egypt where they had gathered a surplus. It's amazing to think about, isn't it? How God's plan of salvation could be so in intricate that it included an entire another, another nation, the nation of Egypt. And Jacob's sons, the very ones who had sold Joseph into slavery, benefited from their evil intent when they went down to Egypt and were able to be fed during the course of the famine. Genesis 49, we arrive at Jacob's death. He's nearing his death. And he gathers his sons around them to give them his blessings. It's a unique chapter because Moses records Jacob's words in the form of Hebrew poetry. And what that Hebrew poetry does is it, it brings a lot of pictures into the prophecies that Jacob made. And it makes those prophecies memorable, particularly the promise to Judah. Maybe I should ask you just for a second if you remember a little bit about Jacob's sons. There were 12 of them by four different mothers. Perhaps you, if you thought to yourself, which one? Which one would I choose after reading the Bible and knowing what the Bible says? Which one would I choose to carry out the promise of the Savior? I won't speak for you, but I'm pretty sure my choice would have been Joseph. After all, he was the one who God accomplished such great things through, right? I think it would have taken me a little bit to arrive at the choice of Judah. Judah was not Jacob's firstborn. As a matter of fact, he was the fourth son born to Jacob. And Judah didn't exactly have an exemplary track record. You know some of the story of Judah? He's the one that actually suggested that instead of killing Joseph, they sell him into slavery so they could make some money off of Joseph before they sent him off. It's Judah who had a run-in, I suppose we could say, with his daughter-in-law. If you want to read a little bit more about that, I won't spoil it in chapter 38 of Genesis. Judah was not exactly an, exem an example of exemplary Christianity. And yet, this is who God chose. I want to pause there just for a second, just to remind ourselves of this, that God's promises and the fulfillment of those promises never rest on mere human beings. Think about it for a moment. I love this expression. I didn't come up with it. But the Bible shows us God's people that we get to read about, warts and all. 
Here, here's what I mean. If you read the story of Abraham, you're going to find that Abraham wasn't always the perfect example of an obedient person either. At least twice, Abraham lied about Sarah to say that she was his sister to protect himself. Isaac struggled with the sin of favoritism, a sin that he passed on to his son Jacob, which made all kinds of troubles for Jacob and his sons. And Judah followed in his father's footsteps. So why? Why does God show us these Old Testament heroes of faith with all of their shortcomings, with all of their warts, with all of their sins? You see, not a single one of them is a person that we would say, no wonder God chose them to carry out such an important plan of salvation. Could it simply be this? Could it be that God shows us these Old Testament heroes and faith, of faith, warts and all, as a comfort for us? As a comfort for people who know their own unfaithfulness? Who know that their obedience has been less than perfect? I know that. So do you. It doesn't take me long to read through God's law to understand that I've fallen far short of the glory of God. And how amazing, how amazing that God is faithful even when his people aren't. Even when his people are unfaithful, God's promises still stand. Have you ever thought this to yourself? Oh, now that I did that, God will probably never bless me in this way. Do you know that God does not work that way? Because of the forgiveness that you have in Jesus, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's take a look at the prophecy that Jacob made again, chapter 49, verse 10. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. Can you see the royalty in that prophecy? The scepter will not depart from Judah, the idea of a scepter that's a symbol of ruling power. And as God tells us about this seed of Jacob that is coming through Judah, he establishes a line of royal descendants. Those royal descendants would be ruling. Maybe a little recap of the history of Israel. When they asked for a king, God finally gave them what they asked for, and he gave them King Saul. Though Saul did a few great things at the beginning of his reign, he eventually turned his back on God, and it was time for a new king to be chosen. You remember who that king was? Second king of Israel? King David. King David from the line of Judah. And from that point forward, there was a long line of kings coming from the family of Judah that reigned on the throne of Israel and Judah. But that's not the most striking part of this prophecy. Did you hear it? Until he comes to whom obedience, to whom ruling belongs. Who could that be talking about? Who could it be talking about that, that one special offspring, one special seed of Judah would be the one that would demand the obedience of all nations? A 
Again, that prophecy can only be fulfilled in Jesus. In establishing this royal line through Judah, God is passing that covenant blessing given all the way back to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, repeated through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to the specific family of Judah. Descendants who would come one after the other and rule on a throne until the king of kings, the greatest king, Jesus himself would come and fulfill this prophecy. If you think about the book of Genesis, those themes are repeated so often in the rest of Scripture. Listen to Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, as the establishment of Jesus as this king to whom nations owe all obedience. John writes this, The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of, the Lord, of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. What we have in this book of Genesis is these overarching themes that make up this entire promise that God made to save you and me and all people. It starts with this idea of seeds or offspring. Do you remember it back in Genesis chapter 3? That the seed of the woman would come to destroy Satan? And then last week, to Abraham again, that through you and your seed, your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed? And now through Judah, a royal seed that was coming. The idea of kingdom, that God put on this earth a creation, a beautiful creation that is his kingdom. And that he chose to put people to be a part of that kingdom. And when that fall into sin happened, God promised that he would restore that kingdom and people in that kingdom. And now through Judah, we get our first promise that the king would be Jesus, that the one who would reign in God's kingdom would be a descendant of the kings that came before him through the line of Judah. Maybe you're asking yourself, boy, this seems like crazy to talk about all this stuff that happened so long ago. Let's bring it home to today. When you see these overarching themes in the Bible, when you see God faithfully fulfilling promises Time after time after time, what that says to you and me is that God will always do what he says. It's proof to you and me that God will never change. That what he promised yesterday will be true today and true tomorrow and all the way to eternity. You see, this is our assurance of God's faithfulness. When we see these themes run through all of Scripture and God's faithfulness to his promises, you can rest assured that God's promises to you will never change. This is God's relentless commitment to carry out his plan of salvation and to carry you to an eternity with him forever in heaven. You see, what God wants to provide you and me through this prophecy through Judah and then the king of kings who came to this earth to live for us, to die for us, and to rise again is comfort. Comfort in knowing that though we are just like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah, people with warts who fall far short of the glory of God, God has not shut us out of his kingdom. Instead, he invites us into his kingdom. He brings us into his kingdom through the king of kings that he sent to this world. 
It's Jesus' life, which is credited to you. It's Jesus' death, which pays for every single wart, every single sin that you and I carry. Jesus' resurrection that assures us he is the king of kings. Jesus has come. And then grace on top of grace. God not only carried out your salvation through the king, he still watches over you. He still protects you and me because that king, that king rules all things. He is the one that's over everything as God has placed all things under him. So what does that mean for you and me in our lives today? It simply means this. If Jesus is the king, and he is, then what do we have to worry about? Why do we have to fear? When we think about things like inflation or high gas prices or political divides or our health or relationships or whatever it is that's troubling you today, do you know who already knows? You who know who already has a plan for you and for your life? The king. The king who's in charge of all things. The king who says to you, don't worry, I'm with you. Don't worry, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Don't fear, because I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. That's the joy of seeing the Lion of Judah and the fulfillment of this prophecy. Your king and my king still reigns. Some takeaways from our sermon today after we see that truth from Paul in Ephesians chapter 1. God placed all things under his, that's Jesus' feet, and appointed him to be head over everything for his church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Here are the takeaways. First, number one, the promise to Judah provides more detail of the coming Messiah. He would rule as a king. The royal seed, the seed promised through Abraham would be a king that came from Judah. He reigns over all things. Number two, the unfaithfulness of God's people highlights the faithfulness of our God. When we see God's people, warts and all, that's when we know God's relentless commitment to carry out his plan of salvation for you and for me. Number three, the king of kings, Jesus, defeated sin and rules all things. Since God is for us, who can be against us? But maybe you're saying to yourself right now, that idea that, that God has placed all things under Jesus' feet, what exactly does that mean? Because as I look around the world, and I'm guessing as you look around the world too, there doesn't seem to always be evidence that God is the one that's in control. We look around and say, well, if God really has all things under his feet, why do things happen in the way that they do? It's a good question. But here's God's assurance to you and me. The same Jesus who defeated sin, who defeated death, who defeated the devil in your place, he is in charge. He is ruling all things for our good in ways that sometimes we cannot see or understand. God assures you and me that there is no reason for fear. And isn't that what the devil wants? Doesn't he want us to live afraid? Doesn't he want us to live as if God doesn't really know what's going on? Have you noticed that we just move from one fear to the next in our world? Once one fear seems to be passed, there comes another one. And after that one goes away, there'll be another thing for us to be afraid of. But Jesus is our king. And through him, God can say to us, don't fear. 
Don't fear. Not only has Jesus risen from the dead, but he rules all things for your good and mine. The Lion of Judah has come, and your victory is assured through him. Amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard and keep your hearts and minds. In Christ Jesus, amen.